scriptures for us this morning. The scripture reading today is from the book of John, chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who, was, who sent me. But night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he said, wash in the pool of shalom, which means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him uh, begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, <laughs> he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Shalom and wash, so I went and washed. <laughs> and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. This coming week, uh, my son Owen is going to be going for his G2 test. And over the last couple of weeks, he's been doing his in-car driving. And uh, as I watched him kind of pull away with the driving instructor, I was wondering how it was going to go. Well, it got a very good report when he came back. He said, oh, he said I was like one of the more comp most confident drivers that he'd ever had on the first day. And he said he actually, he was, he was so glad that I was confident because the, the girl before me, immediately before me, got into the car and, and asked the question, so which one is the gas? <laughs> like that's just what every driver instructor wants to hear, right? Which one is the gas? Oh, this is going to be a treat. Um, but glad, a good thing that she asked the question, right? Sometimes it's better to risk asking a dumb question than to not ask one at all. And John chapter 9 is full of questions. I had not really noticed this before, but actually 17 different questions asked by the various characters in this little chapter in John's gospel. A reminder that asking questions, whether good or bad, is the best way to end up where you want to go. Now, Lent is a season of seeking as we follow Jesus on his journey to the cross. And this morning's reading features yet another encounter that Jesus had along the way, this time with a blind man who was begging at the side of the road. Now, someone begging by the side of the road would have been about as common in Jesus' day as it is in our own. As he said on one occasion, the poor you will always have with you. And every one of us knows that there are maybe certain parts of town where you're bound to find someone who will be sitting at the side of the road asking for some change. Maybe a month ago, I was meeting someone for coffee, Uptown Waterloo, and, and as I was walking in, there was a man outside, and he says, hey, do you have any change? And, and I said, no. And it, it's a really, it's a bad season, you know, for people who are begging at the side of the road because no one carries cash anymore, right? And so I said, sorry, I don't have any cash. And he said, well, that's all right. Could you just buy me some lunch? And I was like, clever, 
clever. And I was like, yeah, absolutely, come on in. Um, so I don't tell the story like to pat myself on the back. There are many times where I don't buy people lunch. Um, but I, I went in and I, I brought him some lunch and a coffee and then I sat down. And like less than an hour later, I hear this familiar voice coming into the restaurant with, with another unsuspecting customer. And I realized, oh, this guy's really clever. Like not only has he figured this out anyway, he's got this pattern. So it was good. And, and, I, and I was thinking about this fact that, you know, so many times we, we run into these situations and I'm sure many of us have had these kinds of encounters. But for the disciples, and for most of us, if we're honest, a person begging is more of a, a problem to be solved than a person to be loved, more an issue for us to discuss than a soul to engage. And so this is the same kind of response that Jesus' disciples have. When they see this man sitting at the side of the road like they would have seen on many occasions, they ask a question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, the disciples' question sounds ridiculous to our ears. We hear that and say, well, being born blind has nothing at all to do with someone sinning. We couldn't maybe understand that. Now, from their perspective, there would be a couple of reasons that they would think this way. And the most prominent one actually comes from uh, a significant part of the Old Testament that we know as the Ten Commandments. And right there in the middle of the Ten Commandments, um, God says through Moses, I am a jealous God punishing the children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. And so they would have understood that if someone's life is going well, then there's the part of the reason for that is that their parents and grandparents had been faithful and had loved God. But if someone's life was kind of fallen apart, or certainly if someone's life got off to a bad start like this man, well, the reason, it probably has something to do with something his parents or grandparents had done. Some kind of sin that this punishment was following generation after generation. Now, the other option the disciples propose is a bit more perplexing. How could this man have earned a punishment that would start at birth? So they said, so maybe his parents sinned, and it's part of this kind of Exodus curse. Or maybe he sinned and was born blind. And again, if you've read it a hundred times, you don't even think about it. But if you slow down, it's like, wait a second. How could he have sinned so that he would be born blind? And it makes you think, like, did they believe in some kind of pre-existence or some kind of reincarnation, which would be very out of place for these young Jewish apprentices of Jesus? Anyways, a strange question, to say the least. But at the same time, you can't really fault them. It's a question we all ask when we're faced with confusing circumstances. Why? Why did this happen? Why is this person going through this trial? Why am I going through this trial? Well, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. When Jesus saw the blind beggar, he didn't see a problem to be solved, but a person to be loved, and through whom the work of God might be displayed. And I was thinking, like, Maybe someone wants to try this. I was thinking, like, we could go, you could walk up to someone who's begging at the side of the road and, and go up to them and say, and you'd have to say it in a bit of a slightly angry voice to get the, the right effect. You'd have to say, do you know what the Bible says about people like you? And they would immediately get defensive. And then you could say that God wants to display his work through you. What a shock that would be for someone to hear. Instead of judgment, which this man would have expected, Jesus says God wants to display his work through this man. It reminds me of a, of a line from Thomas Merton, and this is a profound thing for us to think about. He says, the truth, in quotes, 
The truth that makes another man seem cheap hides another truth that we should never forget and which would make him remain always worthy of honor in our sight. The truth is that this man had a physical disability, that this, this man was poor, that this man was not contributing, and this man depended on other people for his, his existence. Th that's the, the truth. But the greater truth that Merton says is that this person is created in the image of God and has inestimable value. This person has the image of God imprinted on their own soul. And, and so that truth has to override whatever other truth we see when we see someone in need or someone who, whether by their own fault or by someone else's fault or by some unexplained reason, finds themselves in dire straits. This blind beggar reminds us that a world built on an assumption of health and ability sets up roadblocks for people who might otherwise be following Jesus. Did he have any option to be among the disciples to ask the question of someone? No, his barriers were too significant. And so the question, who sinned? Well, maybe the answer is us. Forever thinking of people as topics to discuss while failing to see the potential that God sees in their lives, for writing them off, for casting them aside. My boys love the movie Dumb and Dumber, and they love quoting scenes from it. And one of the favorite scenes from that movie, of course, is, is where um, I believe it's Lloyd who sells their p dead pet bird to the neighborhood blind kid, right? And, and it's this, like, terrible exchange back and forth. Like, you sold my, my, our dead bird to the neighbor blind kid? Like, how could you do this? How could you do this? Terrible thing. Well, we may not be selling dead birds to blind children, but maybe we need to ask ourselves the question, what are we doing to help? What are we doing to help the situation of people who find themselves in situations where because of a lack of uh, health or ability, they find roadblocks in their faith journey? Now, I don't say help in a, in a demeaning way. I don't, I don't mean to say that as though people like, need our help. I mean, for, for goodness sake, like this week, is, the Paralympics are going on, right? And a celebration of, of what people with limits to their physical ability can do. I mean, what is more difficult than skiing with one leg? Do you know what the answer is? Skiing with no legs. Like, I can't even ski with two legs. And these people are able to rise above. And so when I say help, I don't mean like, oh, these people can't do anything on their own. That's not true at all. But I do think that as a church, we need to ask ourselves a question. And as followers of Jesus, we need to ask ourselves the question, about what we can do to help remove some of the blockades that are in the way for people with physical limitations, with mental limitations. How can they become full participants in the work of God's kingdom? How can we help remove some of those barriers so that they can compete, so to speak? Well, I have a few little infirmities myself. I mean, I'm not getting any younger. I have uh, chronic back issues, and I recently have developed a chronic issue with my jaws. Well, I'm just falling apart as the years go by. And I have a bum shoulder. I realize I'm helping to coach Jude's uh, baseball team, and we're doing indoor workouts, and, and we had an odd number of kids a couple of weeks ago, so I was playing catch with one of them, and I realized, this, the realization came to me quite clearly, I can no longer throw the ball as far as a 13-year-old. And I, like, I couldn't. I was, literally, I was bouncing the ball across the field house, and I'm like, this is, this is shameful. <laughs> like, what have, I, what have I sunk to here? And so every once in a while, I have this thought. It's like, um, if God were to say, all right, Brandon, here's the deal. I'm going to heal something, but you've got to pick one. 
Like, which one of these things is it going to be? I, I can't just heal the whole thing, so you're going to have to pick. And so I think of it, and, but I always default to the, to the one that, that, uh, that maybe haunts me the most. I, I shared a story maybe three years ago after a period of, of, of stress, of not really managing my stress well. I actually developed um, a condition in my left eye, and I actually have no central vision in my left eye. And when I was meeting with the, the eye specialist at the end, I said, so what, what can I do about this? He had told me it's, it's nothing can be done about it medically. And, and I said, what I can do? And he says, well, he says, uh, take care of your right eye. And so that, that comment has been like looming over me for the last three years. And every time anyone like throws a paper airplane, I'm like, ah, you know, like, don't, don't. And so I always think when I have this little imagination of what thing would I want healed, well, I'm like, probably this eye. I mean, it doesn't bother me now. It doesn't bother me. I can read, I can drive, I can look at you, I can whatever. But I think, oh gosh, but if something happened over here, I'd be in trouble. So fine, I guess I'll deal with the back pain and the bum shoulder and the rest of it. Well, the blind beggar's experience was exact, the exact opposite of what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that at some point an injury will, will cause me to lose vision and I won't be able to see clearly. But this blind beggar all of a sudden goes from an entire life of not seeing at all to seeing with clarity. Like that is just profound stuff. Jesus shows off his naturopath skills. He wipes a spread of spit and mud on the man's eyes. Oh, but the humiliation continues. I mean, not only can this man not see, and not only does he have to sit at the side of the road and beg for money, but now he's got to walk through town with mud and spit smeared across his face to go wash it off. And I wonder what he was thinking as he walked to the pool of Siloam. Was he thinking, I can't wait to see again? Or was he more likely thinking, this is embarrassing. I can't wait to get this muck off of my face. And he bends down and he, he washes the mud and spit off his face. And then he opens his eyes and finds that he can see. The understatement of the year in the, in the next verse of the Bible. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Not even an exclamation mark on the sentence. Just so matter of fact, he went, washed, came home seeing, just like that. Not a big deal, happens every day. But this was far from straightforward for his neighbors. They were confused. Is this the same man? I mean, it really looks like him, but that guy was blind, and this guy clearly is not. And they ask him, he's like, yeah, it is me. And the man responds, well, Jesus, uh, he, he put some mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. He tells a story of what he'd experienced. He didn't propose theories or offer any explanation beyond what had happened to him. As one biblical commentator, Merrill Tenney, writes, the healing was a crisis which brought fresh response, positive and negative, to Jesus' ministry. Well, but how on earth could this be negative? Wait a second, he just healed a blind man. How could there possibly be a negative result that comes from this? Well, some things are just too good to be true. Like this image here, free lip piercing. Well, and maybe a little more than that. John 9, 13 says, They brought the Pharisees, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now, if you've ever read the Bible, if you've ever been in church before, you know that this is not going to end well. Like Jesus never had a positive interaction with the Pharisees. Whenever they run into each other, either the Pharisees attack him for something or he just attacks them for something. They they were always in this spitting match with one another. And so what was the problem here? Well, the healing took place on the Sabbath. And so if we go back to those Ten Commandments I referred to earlier, one of the Ten Commandments was to honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. And this was one of the commandments that Jesus had a particular penchant for bending, if not breaking altogether. 
He had, he had done this kind of thing before. In fact, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had encountered someone with a physical disability beside a pool on a Sabbath day and healed them. He did it in John chapter 5. He met a man who was paralyzed for 38 years and he stood up and walked. And the result of that, after this confrontation with the Pharisees, was that the Jews persecuted him. So he does this incredible thing, but there's this negative side to it as well. St. Gregory the Great once said, what is more unfortunate than those who are made even more wicked by the sight of happiness? Like here someone is healed from a lifetime of blindness and they're trying to figure out a way to turn this sour. My goodness. The Pharisees tried to explain it. They're talking amongst themselves, but they found themselves even at odds with one another. Okay, well, he, he opened the eyes of the blind, so he's gotta be like good, right? Yeah, but he did it on a Sabbath, so he's got to be a sinner. I don't know. I don't know. This doesn't add up. Something's wrong here. Well, the Pharisees interview the man, and they ask his opinion. They say, well, what do you think of this guy who healed you? He says, well, he's a prophet. Well, they weren't so sure. So they round up the man's parents for questioning. Is this your son? Yes. Was he blind from birth? Yes. Can he see now? Yes. If you have any more questions, go to him. They knew where this was going. They knew that they were in trouble. So they said, just go talk to him. He can answer these questions for you. John 9, 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And of course, when they say give glory to God, they didn't mean give glory to God at all. They meant give glory to us. We know. We know that this man was a sinner. So prove us right by denouncing him now by acknowledging that, that the man who gave you sight after a lifetime of blindness is an evil sinner. Say that to prove us right. Well, the formerly blind man clearly has a sharp wit. And it's, it's, it's funny for me to think, like, like was he always witty, you know? Or, or was this something that was part of the healing, where he got this, like, awesome sense of humor? He says, well, I've told you already, and, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Like, oh, guy. As my kids like to say, roasted. Roasted. Sean Copeland writes, if we are to enhance and build up the capacities for good, wholesome and holy life, we must learn to say yes to what affirms and renews wholeness in life. And we must learn to say a related no to what induces and brings about destruction and ruin. In this practice, we are invited and challenged to make a fully conscious choice about who it is we are and who it is we shall become. You see, not only did this man have to adjust to, to, being blind, to having his blindness removed, but now he has to all actually stand up and say, well, this is who I am. And I'm not going to give in to your bullying and your pressuring here. I'm going to stand up and be who I truly am. I'm going to say no to this ridiculous inquiry you're making. But of course, any act of gumption is bound to be rejected, at least at first. And so the Pharisees hurl insults at him, dismissing Jesus as an unknown. But the man keeps going. This is good. He gets more and more confident. Well, the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Left hook, right hook, and an uppercut for good measure. The Pharisees are down. And from the, from the floor, like Sonny Liston, 
they reach out, you were steeped in sin at birth, how dare you lecture us? And they throw him out of the synagogue. Which brings the narrative full circle. Back to the belief that sin had led to his blindness. The Pharisees were prepared for just about anything. Except the fact that they could be wrong. Except that God could be working in ways they hadn't anticipated. You see, they had arrived. They had it all figured out. They knew how everything worked. Unless, of course, a man blind from birth was suddenly healed on the Sabbath by a wandering rabbi. Peter Senge, who's a professor at MIT, writes that new insights fail to get put into practice because they conflict with deeply held internal images of how the world works. Images that limit us to familiar ways of thinking and acting. This one didn't fit inside their religious box. So they did what every good Pharisee would do. They got rid of the source of the problem. Now this story is about the healing of a man born blind. But if we stop there, our spiritual voyeurism puts us at risk of failing to learn the chapter's most significant lesson. Re-entered Jesus, who had heard that they had thrown him out. Now, this idea of being thrown out of the synagogue was fairly common, apparently. It comes up again in John chapter 12 and again in John chapter 16. It refers to this, this practice of putting someone out. It's like someone here like, standing up and disagreeing with me and saying, get out of here. It's not like, it wasn't like a permanent excommunication, but it's like this kind of public humiliation. It's like, just get out. And, and everyone would be like, oh, geez, you know, you crossed the Pharisees. And I wonder what that was like for Jesus. I had this thought of this show. I, I remember watching this a few years ago, Undercover Boss. Did you ever watch that? Where you had like, so the CEO of the company, the next picture, the guy on the left, this is the CEO of Menchie's. And so he gets like kind of this transformation to look like a 16-year-old employee. And then he'll go and work at like the cash at a Menchie's just to experience what it's like for one of his employees. And, then, and they do this with all kinds of different industries. And of course, they learn about, you know, the difficulties and challenges kind of of the front line of their, of their employees. And sometimes they, they will find out some of the negative things that are going on on in the company that they're leading, some of the negative things, maybe the way their managers are treating employees or, or the different practices that they're doing that are negative. And I, and I kind of imagine, like, Jesus is like the undercover boss here. They don't know who he is, that he's the son of God here. They don't know this yet. And he's watching people throw people out of the place that is supposed to be the seat of teaching for Israel, the place where people are supposed to learn about his father. These people are throwing people out because they're challenged. And so Jesus arrives back on the scene, and he finds the blind man. Jesus heard that they've thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, this is an interesting thing for us to keep in mind here. When, when Jesus had his first interaction with the blind man, he, the man was blind. So he wouldn't have seen Jesus, right? He wouldn't have known what Jesus looked like, which is why it's kind of ironic when they ask him the question, where is he? And he's like, I don't know. Like, I was blind. I don't know what he looks like. And so here Jesus appears to him, and he asks him this question, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, well, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Oliver Wendell Holmes once wrote that a moment's insight is sometimes worth a life's experience. A lifetime of blindness for an encounter with the Son of God. In verse 37 there, we hear an echo of Jesus' chat with the Samaritan woman, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. She, recall that she was looking forward to the Messiah's arrival, to which Jesus replied, I who speak to you am he. 
And now to the blind man who is looking for the one who had in some way already saved him, Jesus replies, he is the one speaking with you. I'm here. The one you're longing for, the one you're seeking, the one you're looking for is speaking to you right now. If only we could have all of our seeking met with such an obvious revelation. Now that the man had both physical and spiritual sight, Jesus turns to the Pharisees. For judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Well, no, that's just cruel. I mean, the first part's happy enough. He's going around healing people who are blind. That's exciting. But he's saying, but he's going to make people who can see blind? Why would he do that? That kind of ruins things. Well, he explains what he means in verses 40 to 41. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Boom. Mic drop. Exit stage left. That's how the chapter ends. But what did Jesus mean by calling the Pharisees blind? Well, Tenney refers to their complacent assumption of spiritual sight. It's the one who thinks they can see everything clearly who is actually blind. That's what Jesus says. I'm here to to heal the blind, but if you think you can see clearly, well, there's really no hope for you, is there? If you think you've got this figured out, you're in trouble. He says, now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus redefines the seat of sinfulness where this whole conversation got off the ground. Not in the physical trial that this man had no say about, but in the response of the ones who thought they had already arrived. They were the ones in this chapter who were guilty of sin. Tenney writes that the law was for them a tradition to be kept, a dead letter, not a living voice. The result of this attitude was a prejudice that blinded the Pharisees to anything but their own preconceived opinions and so made them ignorant of the full truth. And this is the danger we face if we miss the heart of the story, the mistake we will make that every one of us needs our eyes to be opened by an encounter with Jesus. Now, the story gives us a model of belief in the man born blind and a model of unbelief in the Pharisees who examined and rejected him. So as we leave this place this morning and as we continue along the road of faith, may we stop and care for those that we meet along the way. That's certainly one of the lessons that this chapter pulls out. But may we also have the humility to admit that we too need Jesus' touch so that we can see more clearly. A pastor named Jim Simbala writes that there will come a day when faith becomes sight, and then only then will our seeking of the Lord be finished at last. None of us have arrived. We've all got a long way to go. So let's invite God to, to be with us on the journey. I invite you to stand. We'll close in prayer together. God, admittedly, it's easier for us to maybe look at others and have the, have the focus on others they have and the ways that they fall short and, and the ways that you need to work something miraculous in their lives. But as this chapter reminds us, if that's where we stop our thinking, if that's where we think you're, you're active, then we're missing out on the opportunity to invite you into our own situations. And so we ask for your forgiveness for believing that we see clearly, for believing that we've got it figured out, and for missing out on on your healing that every single one of us needs. 
We pray for sight, God, that you would remove the blindness that we all experience when we think we've got things figured out. When we judge others instead of judging ourselves. God, we ask that you would work the miraculous in our lives and use us to extend that same kind of miracle-working power in the lives of the people we meet through the course of our week. Be with us now as we head off into groups for discussion. Help us to spur one another on, to challenge one another, to stretch one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as we do each week, we break now for a time in discussion. We'll invite you to go for the next 25 minutes uh, to join us in the gym. If you haven't been here before, we basically take this time to reflect on this morning's message. I've written some questions to get some discussion started. So join us in the gym, and our time will formally wrap up at 11 o'clock. Thanks.